Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode number 11. My guest on today's show is J.V. Crum. J.V. has built what can only be described as an internet empire. Books, podcasts, training and development programs, he's a keynote speaker and he hosts webinars by the dozen. One of the most interesting things about J.V. is that he started all this work after he made his first million dollars. From the age of about five, J.V. would tell anyone who'd listen that he wanted to be a millionaire. As a youngster, he had a clear entrepreneurial drive, and by 25, he was a fully-fledged millionaire. But, predictably, as he sat surrounded by all the fancy possessions money can buy, he realised that he was completely unfulfilled. He hadn't made his money doing something that he loved, and the money he'd made had not bought him happiness. But here's the twist. JV then started a business, the beast I described earlier as an internet empire, and he called it the Conscious Millionaire, a name that, to me at least, suggests it's all about the pursuit of financial wealth. Well, as it turns out, it's not that straightforward. There is a depth to JV and what he's trying to achieve that is as authentic as it is paradoxical to the name of his company. Once I'd spoken to JV for two minutes, I knew there was so much more to him than the pursuit of money. But, just like the Roman philosopher Seneca, perhaps it's easy to be deeply philosophical about wealth when you have it. Through all the books, programs, webinars and speaking that JV does, I think that his foremost talent lies in his ability to motivate others. In this episode of the Team Guru podcast, JV gives us terrific insight into his understanding of what it takes to find authentic motivation. He tells us about his rise to millionaire status and the things he's done to find true fulfillment ever since. I hope you enjoy my chat with the conscious millionaire, JV Crumb. JV, thank you so much for coming on the Team Guru podcast. It's so nice to have you with us. Well, David, you know what's really exciting about this? And I'm doing so many interviews today with people, you know, where we're, I call it, we're, we're uh, interviewing over the big pond. Yeah. You know, when, I, when, I'm, when I'm dealing with somebody in Great Britain, you know, it's the little pond. But, you know, between the States and you, it's the big pond. Yeah, it sure is a big pond. 14 hours of it. I know I've been to Asia twice, and in fact, in three years, my target's to be living there part of the time. And uh, I think you know the total plane flights can. It, well, I know they. You know, it's easy for them to be twenty four hours. Yeah. You know, yeah. start to finish. By the time you change a couple of planes, and all I know is when I go that far, my body is so confused, so, <laughs> so confused, doesn't know what's happening. That's the and then you like trick. landed at six thirty in the morning, and you took off here at Friday, and it's Sunday, and and you and you can't go to bed, and you can't eat because the moment you eat, all that blood's going to go down, and you can't have a drink, so you kind of try to stay awake till about six or seven, and then you just eat and drink and go to bed for about twelve hours. 
I know you, you, your body's in a state of shock, isn't it? You know, it's hard Top enough when you and I are trying to organize a time for a, to do this interview and I'm trying to work know, out the mass. I think and, we got to get our body all organized to, to do the whole trip. Yeah, right? And we're staying still. Imagine, you know, when you actually do the trip. So do you ever find yourself down this way in Australia, JV? Well, you know, actually Australia and New Zealand, you've probably heard of New Zealand. It's not too far from you. I have. Uh, yeah. They I'll beat us in a big rugby game a couple of weeks uh -oh, ago. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. That's not good. The World Cup uh, final, no less. Well, that's really not good. No. no. But they well, it's good. Yeah. They're, they're better than good. us. Yeah. Are they? Yeah. Well, there you have it. So, actually, Australia and New Zealand, I've only been to seven countries in Asia. So, I haven't been to Australia and New Zealand. But because it's English speaking and I've only heard good things and I know so many people from there, you know, at this point, that they're kind of high on my list as places I might want to, you know, stay part of the time. Yeah, I bet they you know? are. And where, yeah. where are you based in the U.S.? Uh, I'm, I'm right now I'm based in Denver. Right, uh, Which is kind of in this, it's kind of a third uh, uh, from the West Coast and two-thirds from the East Coast. And it's really Denver West where you get most of the progressive thinking in the United States. And, and Mile High Stadium is about all I know about Denver. Is that right? Oh, well, Mile High Stadium is just, you know, I see it for, I, I can see it out of my windows. Um, it's not very far, the... Uh, the Pepsi Pavilion, I, I'm actually going over there tomorrow to buy some tickets to the Avalanche and um, buying, you know, one of my Christmas presents is I'm buying three hockey games in December uh, for myself. So that, that'll be kind of fun. So you cop the brunt of the U.S. winter there, it's fair to say. Well, we, we, we do, but it's not like it is in the east. And the reason is um, it can be as cold, but we're, first of all, we're a mile up. So if it's 40 or 50 degrees here Fahrenheit, uh you literally in your in your vehicle can be in a short sleeve shirt. You know, in fact, if you have a sweater and a jacket on, you're going to be hot. So it's I bet I wouldn't be in a short sleeve shirt over there, JV. No, I'm telling you, I I'm from Florida. It's true. It so being a mile up makes a big difference, and then the humidity is uh, reasonably low. Right, and so the difference between here, say, like New York City. Uh, the same temperature in New York City on the Fahrenheit would feel 20 to 30 degrees colder than it feels in Denver. Right. Wow. So not so yeah. bad. Not as bad as it looks when it's they're, not, it's when they're playing as, in the snow. Yeah. It's not as bad. And then when it snows down, we, we call it down here at 5,200 feet is right. down here because the slopes, the ski slopes, you can get to ski slopes in an hour and 15 minutes and those will be nine, ten thousand 10,000 feet. So when it's moderate weather down here, water, you know, let's say 57 degrees, right? Uh, up there, it might be zero and just snowing like crazy. Right. It's a beautiful That's part of the world. Cold. That can be cold. It is a really beautiful part of the world. The Rockies are, are quite breathtaking. I go camping. I love going camping. Not this time of the year. No, I, I September, I think the last weekend in September, uh, you won't see me out camping until May again. Well, um, you and I are living the the opposite life, quite obviously. I'm true. sitting here sweating. It's it's above thirty degrees Celsius, so that's about a thousand degrees Fahrenheit. It's humid, <laughs> and uh, because Just I'm recording, you're in an oven. Yeah, I'm Absolutely. in an oven, and because I'm recording, I turn the air conditioning off because it hums in the background. So, so literally okay. sitting here sweating through this interview, JV. That's what I'm giving up for this chat with you. 
Well, I feel um, I feel very fortunate. <laughs> I mean, uh, what I'm giving up is um, food. As we were talking food. I'm giving up food. Yeah, we were talking before we got started. Uh, it's um, as we're recording this at 6 p.m. my time, and I just have been eaten today. You know, so <laughs> uh, but I have some salmon waiting for me. If your um, if your microphone goes quiet, we'll know you've passed out. Yeah, it's like oh wow. JV's not there. Wake up. <laughs> so, JV, I'm so excited. This is fun. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm super excited to have you on the show. And I just want to point out to my listeners that you actually contacted me. You're the first person I've had 11 episodes in to contact me to be on the show. So, I appreciate that. And when I started searching around for you, I, I got even more excited. And it, it's, you know, you were the master of what can only be described as an internet kingdom. You've written books, you're a keynote speaker, <laughs> you host a couple of different podcasts, you're up to episode number 370 in one of them, which dwarfs my experience. You offer programs and webinars, you've produced a bunch of different types of media. And once I jumped online and started searching for Conscious Millionaire, I found quickly that you are everywhere. Tell well, us. That's good to know. That's always, you know, good to know. I'm, you you I'm are. serious. I mean, isn't that what we all want? So, yeah, it's. It, it, How I'm did you doing, get there? I'm doing my – well, really, how I got there, I mean, the shortest version of the story, the short version, because we don't have three hours. The short version is – I'm going to give you the cliff notes. This is going to be the most cliff notes I've ever done, right? The the shortest version. Oh, good. I, I know grew cliff notes. A, yeah. Grew up in a family in a little town of two or 300 people in central Florida, and nobody had any money, including us. And at five, I decided this wasn't for me, and I was going to grow up and be a millionaire with absolutely no support from my family because they thought this was just, you know, laughable at best, right? It's like, sure, right? It's like, it's not very probable. Yeah, but by 25, it's like playing in the first, NFL. Yeah, right. But by 25, I'd made my first million because I decided at five I was going to do it. So, I mean, a lot of people go, well, how did you do it at 25? Well, I, st I decided to be a millionaire at five. So, I had 20 years to think about this, <laughs> It right? actually took you quite a long time then, huh? Yeah, you got to go. Well, yeah, well, you know, you had to go to elementary school and all these other things first, uh, get through high school. But um, within three months, I realized something severely wrong with the picture. I'm, I, I had a day in which I kind of had a little meltdown in 60 seconds and I realized that I was really quite unfulfilled and miserable, uh, that I wasn't enjoying my life really at all. And yet I had all these trappings that I had dreamed about. Right. And I realized something was missing and I went off with sweat lodges and Tony Robbins and Wayne Dyer and reading all these uh, personal development and spiritual development books and eventually, short version, sold the companies and said, I'm not living my purpose. That's what's missing. And I was right. And then I went off and did a whole lot of series of things like live at a Buddhist monastery and Esalen, that's a human potential movement, and moved to Boulder and shaved my head and meditated and camped out and you know, said, why am I here? And ultimately, I had a day. I was in a hot tub. It was the best place for a revelation to occur. When they do the yeah. movie, you know, the, there was no bottle of wine. I keep going, maybe I should just start telling people I was having a glass of wine. You, you didn't know, but read I was the script. Oh, no. You, I, I did not read the script. That's the problem. I said, well, where's that Cabernet, right? And I had a, a brochure from the Green Festival, and I I've been thinking for a couple of years that I want to do a millionaire program, but all the millionaire programs that were out were what I call these smoke and mirrors, empty boxes, where the only 
thing that anybody cared about was how many mon- how much money they could make. But I didn't really care about helping people. And it was it was only about make money and your life will be perfect. Well, see, wow. I'd already lived that at yeah. 25, and I knew that was not true. And I looked down and I saw the word conscious. And literally in my forehead, I saw this phrase, conscious millionaire. I got a tingly into my spine. I said, wahoo, this is it. And 40 minutes later, got out of the hot tub because I, I just wanted to be in my bliss for a little while. Being a good attorney, I took the URL. I filed my trademark everywhere. Smart. And, uh, smart, right? And uh, that was the beginning of uh, Conscious Millionaire. And I realized that it was immediately realized, oh, my God, what a cool thing to you know discover, right? Or get this, um, this kind of impression of. And that it was going to be a path that would include personal growth and spiritual development and uh, really making your difference and mark on the world and doing something that matters in the way that you make your money. And all those things have been what have come together to create Conscious Millionaire. So, I, you know, I'm so excited about it every day because I can't think of anything better for someone to do with their life than to consciously make money in a way that matters to them and other people. So how long ago was that awakening, JV? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, actually, it was about 11 years ago. And then there was a circuitous route from there to here. Amid all of that, I got sick a couple of times. I ended up having to make a decision. I, I mean, by having to make a decision, there wouldn't be any other decision I would have made. My father was in his 80s and got Parkinson's. And so there I was on the West Coast, and he was in Florida, and I made a decision that there was just no way that I couldn't not go back and take care of him because yeah. I was visiting him, and it became clear to me he wasn't paying his bills, uh, and there was plenty of money at this point. So the real issue is that with Parkinson's, and, and you you know not everybody knows this, but you get a dementia that's not that different from Alzheimer's. There's yeah. a lot of similarities. Yeah. And, and so he'd put down a bill, for example, and half hour later, it was like it was paid. I remember one time, uh, it was on a Friday afternoon, and the and the lawn wasn't mowed. And so we, you know, we had a lawn guy. So I called the lawn guy up. It was May fifth, I believe, and I said um, the lawn wasn't mowed. I was just kind of checking to see if everything's okay. And he goes, "Well, your dad hasn't paid me since November." Wow. Now the guy had the guy had my phone number, right? Yeah. And and so I'm. But I had this horrible feeling he was telling me the truth. Yeah, your dad needed your help. Yeah, and uh, although I wondered why he had waited, you know, seven months or something to call me, uh, but I um, had to gingerly go, Dad, well, let's look at the checkbook. I just paid him, right? That would be the answer. And I go, okay, well, it turned out he had just paid him in November, and this was May, so got him paid. But those kind of things were going on, so I needed to go back and take care of my dad. And then he had a stroke, And um, so there were a lot of things that happened along the way. And so part of the story of the book is that I wrote the book over a seven-year time period, and I rewrote it seven times. And it's like, go, kids, don't try this at home. I don't recommend that as the journey. But in my case, it got the book the way it was supposed to be because I had mono twice. I had all these interruptions where when my dad had the stroke, I shut down the business at one point, and I had to give people back their money because I was doing a three-day event. But being with my dad was all that was important. I was with him 12 hours a day during those last few months of his life because I, I, every day I'd say to myself, when my dad's gone, he's gone. 
right? But the business will be there. You can go find customers, but it's more important to know what's most important in your life. But every time one of these things would happen, ironically, the book would be finished. It'd be like at the editor. And then I'd get it back. And then I would have gone through, thought through every page of it, you know, while these events were going on. And I'd go, oh, I think I'm going to change this. <laughs> so so <laughs> did it, it, it turn out for you that that type of experience with your dad was essentially felt like a step back at the time, but in the long run, it was two steps forward because it it added to the richness of life and, and your experience. Well, I, never thought, I, I made a very, I made a decision like in, oh, I guess an hour. It was actually Christmas, Christmas day, you know, where I was just realizing I had gone back to spend some time with my dad. And I was realizing how how many things were difficult for him. Yeah. And I remember being in the living room now that you know that you ask, and I was laying on the sofa looking at the Christmas tree, and I had this profound realization, which of course was true, but it hit me. My dad was dying, right? And yeah. I don't think I'd gotten that in that same way. Of course you knew it. But it's different when you feel it, yeah. right? And Christmas time probably wasn't a coincidence that you felt it then. Yeah, because that's a family time. And, yeah. you know, mom had died like 20 years before. And I remember waking up about five. I've never told this story, by the way. Uh, I woke up about five in the morning and I literally cried for an hour that deep stuff where you think you're going to stop breathing. And when I finished it, I had made my decision. And it was very authentic. I said, there's just, you know, I'm coming back. And my, and I, you know, I sat my dad down and had lunch with him. And of course he was shocked because he knew I lived, you know, I loved California and I loved Colorado and this is really where I wanted to be. And, you know, he says, are you sure you want to do that? And I said, yeah, I want to be with you. And he was actually very happy about that. And, uh, I never regretted it. It was, I now, you know, it's one of those things when you make an authentic journey, uh, kind of decision, like he was really not doing well. And I actually thought he was going to die in about six months and it was actually six years. So it really was a very long drawn out thing. And you were there with but, him for the six years. Yeah, I was there the whole time wow. because I made a decision and I made a commitment and, you know, and there were lots of times where you don't think it's going to go on. You know, when, when so both of my parents, I've been through this, so I know a lot about this particular journey. My mother was a 10-year dying experience, and so was my dad. That's how it both turn, both of them turned out. My dad, my mom was on dialysis for five years. So I went through that whole experience, which is a very unpleasant experience for someone to go through. So, you know, 20 years of my uh, adult life at two different 10-year periods was spent with, uh, with my parents dying. Yeah. That's uh, tough. So, but but it also brings you to authenticity because you would make any different decision than you made. Because I know I had so many friends go, well, how can how can you give up? You're starting to build a business, and you know you get coaching clients, and you know, and I go, how hmm. could I not be there when I'm an only child? My mom's dead. How could you not be there for your father? How could you not do that? Yeah, that's the sort of thing that you regret on your own deathbed, isn't it? You don't sit there and think about all the money you've well, made. I couldn't, you've- have, I couldn't have even lived with myself. I mean, yeah. how it would be like uh, it'd be like abandoning uh, someone when at a time that they were becoming defenseless because he really was in a position where he would have easily been able to have people take care, you know, advantage of him, and not knowing, thinking that he's doing things, but he's actually not doing them. JV, right? there's so much. 
to talk about it in that story. I, I love that story. And thanks for telling us about it in, in such depth um, and, and emotional, uh, in an emotional, honestly way. Um, going back to the, the very beginning, though, you, you had such a strong entrepreneurial spirit at the age of four and five. I, I remember reading somewhere that you were selling um, some kind of fruit drink to the oh, high school kids. Oh, my Oh, yes, as, yes. That's as a, they got off the bus. Story. That was really the beginning, I guess, of my. You know, you look back, and at the time, of course, you, you have no perspective at all. Uh, that is the great thing about being able to look back. You have perspective finally. Yeah, I, I got uh, it was uh, my birthday present was a pup tent. I wanted a pup tent. I was just into cowboys and Indians, and I wanted a pup tent. And, you know, I was just really, that was it. That's all I wanted. And because we're out in the country, my dad, by the way, was a farmer. So we had 100 acres, that uh, two acres of which was for us, and my grandmother lived with us. So my grandmother's part of this story, because I didn't have brothers and sisters, and my grandmother was kind of like a grandmother, a best friend, uh, sister, you know, wow. there, there were only eight kids within three years of my age. So, you know, if you beat up your f best friend across the street, which we would do, we'd beat each other up. You know, that's what little kids do. I'm just yeah. saying, you know, that's what you do. But the next day, you got to play together because there's yeah. nobody else. No one else. Yeah, somehow you got to resolve the fact you beat each other up the day before. So we had a tangerine tree in our yard, and we didn't have we didn't have any money. So I went down to the grocery store. And I got them to give me some egg cartons, and we saved some egg cartons. So my grandmother helped me, and we took tangerines, and we squeezed these tangerines into little those little egg cartons, you know, 12 little things. And then I set up my pup tent. I think it's interesting. I mean, it was kind of clever of me when I look back. I go, well, that was kind of smart. I mean, you know, given the resources you had, I set it up by the uh, where the high school kids got off the bus because I figured they had some money. And I was going to get some of it. So I sold them for a dime. You know, you laugh. Lucy had her lemonade stand but and her psychiatric stand, right? But I had my tan. I'm sure they threw it away. You know, you can't imagine they drank this stuff. They were just you being know, kind. They were being very kind. And uh, and uh, But I sold them my tangerine juice for a dime. You're that was my a young oh. entrepreneur at at its best, and then by the time you were twenty five, you you made a million bucks. Now I know everyone listening wants to know how did you make that first million dollars? wasn't yeah, in, wasn't with tangerine, I don't but, think. You know, that that actually comes into play again. I was <laughs> kind of the yeah, you know, in in some family dynamics, they're different than they're biologically set up to be. So kind of about an 80% level. I was really the father in the relationship and he was the son. It's just the way it turned out. It's just the way it turned out. And um, so he's, he, he was very good at knowing where the money was going to be and quite bad at getting it. So that's why we never had any money is that he wasn't good at running a business, but he was very good at figuring out where the money was. And so basically, I was finishing a master's in clinical psych, and I came home when I was working on a thesis, and he was basically in bankruptcy. I mean, it, there was just no money. And he said, will you come and work with me in the business? What was actually the last thing in the world I wanted to do, uh, I decided to go to law school. Uh, a, B, it was a trucking line I had no interest in. C, I knew nothing about business because, you know, it's really important to think about how we code things. So I grew up in this environment where everybody owned a little business and everybody's broke. So 
I simultaneously decided I'd be a millionaire, but I was certain it wasn't from business because business was how you had no money. That's, that's what I. That's your experience. That was my experience. So I went to college. I literally had never taken a business course or read a business book or even a business magazine article. I knew nada about business, but it turns out I was a duck to water. And obviously, I had. I had been, well, you talk about skills that can transfer. So I was the seventh grader with not very good grades, but my mother, dad's a farmer, mom's a school teacher. And I was bringing home these, which I actually found after my dad died. I found my seventh grade uh, report card. It wasn't very good. <laughs> and so every six weeks, I would, you know, if they, I think if they had paddled me, you know, back then you could do that kind of thing. Um, it wouldn't have worked. Instead, I would listen for six weeks about how I was not living up to my potential, and I would get hagged about it every day. Did you do your homework? Did you do this? You know, you're just not doing, you know, what you could be doing with your life, blah, blah, blah. So by the end of the seventh grade, I literally had a day, you know, I had these moments of epiphany, obviously, is kind of how my life works. And I said, well, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. I'm really sick of it. I'm going to figure out how to make an A. And so I did for the next two years. There were no books on how to do it. I just took notes and would see how to best take the notes. And then I would take tests and I would go study my test to see how I made the correct answers and how I made the, the, the incorrect answers. And I really paid attention to that. So the upshot of that one is that I ended up being valedictorian in high school with a 4.0. Did you? And Impressive. I got so good at making the A's that I was a 19-year-old senior in college with a 4.0 and a 20-year-old wow. gra graduate student with a 4.0. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is that in that process, I learned something that is how I then was able to turn around a company and know nothing about business and make it highly successful very quickly. In order to do that, I had created systems. Right. I had a system for how to study. I had a yeah. system for how to do a paper. You know, by the time I got to my senior year, I'd have everything read and outlined halfway through the semester. I had a system for how to analyze questions on a test. And all I did with the business, really, and it's what I help people do today, because if you want to go from six to seven, or I help you know one guy uh, double his business from one to two million in five years, uh, five years, sorry, five months, five years wouldn't be quite so dramatic, but five mm -hmm. months. Be okay. And so, and it's all about systems. That's how I think. It turns out that's my kind of personal genius is that I'm really good at processes. And I just installed processes and studied what worked and didn't work and changed everything until I got everything working the, you know, correctly. And then I started hiring people and teaching them the processes. So we had a, we had a system for everything, and that's how you scale a business. And it just and that's how you turn a business around. It turns out that I just happened to have the skill that was transferable from one domain to another domain, you know, called business. And, and you worked it out. And that's such a powerful step in, in anyone's professional journey or personal journey is you worked out what was the thing that lay at the core of your success, the success you were having in a, in a number of different fields. It was your, your superpower was systems and, and you worked yeah, that that's out. My, and that's, that's my superpower is yeah. that I can create processes, you know, in my sleep. In fact, sometimes I do it in, in the book, there are 14 diagrams. So I actually created the core diagram in my sleep. So my mentor at that time, Gary Ryan Blair, who you know has been massively successful, 
And he kindly read my book for me. And we did a coaching session. And he goes, okay, so here's what's missing from your book that every successful book has. And I said, what's that? And he goes, there's no, um, there's no, no uh, pictures. There's no pictures. <laughs> and, and he described, and I said, well, tell me what you mean. <laughs> because I'm not an artist, so I knew yeah. I couldn't draw pictures. So I go, okay, I think he's on to something more than there's no pictures. And he goes, you've got to tell them in every chapter with a diagram how they accomplish the outcome that you're talking about. Right. I said, really? And he goes, yeah, you got to show them the steps. And I said, Gary, that's so easy. That's what I know how to do. I just didn't know I needed pictures saying that. I can create a system for that. So I actually went to bed. This is the truth. I went to bed. I've also, I don't know. I've never told any of these stories I'm telling. I've never told this story. (laughs) I went to bed. I always, I go to bed. I ask myself questions and, um, and one question, only one question. And then I frequently wake up the next morning and like I'll, I'll have a whole podcast or I'll have uh, part of a product done, right? And I had paper next to my, uh, my bed on the bed stand. And I l- remember distinctly laying in bed for about a half hour and drawing this diagram, which is in chapter two of my book. And it took the, the formula for creating wealth that I already had, conscious focused action, and then moved it into five levels. So there was results and learning, and it was a triangle. And each section had three three pieces because I'm a three person. And um, that diagram, the way it came out of me organically that first day, the rig- the core diagram ended up in the book about eighty percent of what came out the first time. Without it, you know, so there was very little revision. And then I took and made 14 different versions of the diagram so that every chapter built upon the same diagram but right. changed based upon the content. And I went, oh, my gosh, this is easy. I know how to do this. You know, this is how I think. So you're a, bed, um, you're a bedtime my, scribbler. My, yeah. And so my office has a, a wall where I put together two four-by-six whiteboards. So I have a four, basically a four-foot-by-12-foot whiteboard. And I just draw processes on it. And it, it's how I think about everything. So that was the interesting thing is it turned out that one of the most core things to really scaling and building a business was the number one skill I had in life. Fantastic. What a great coincidence. It was a fabulous coincidence. So then, JV, at 25, once you'd made your million bucks, you worked out something that people have been telling us since the time of Jesus. You worked out that the same thing that Seneca told us, and you know, he was around 2,000 years ago, that wealth is not necessary for happiness, and it's not going to buy you happiness. You need to have a, a, a rich life with so much else yeah, you, more you, going you, you on. Doing, some, doing something that's meaningful to yeah. you. And, and but you had to work that, that out for yourself, huh? I you, had to work that out for myself. And so, you know, you look back, I'm looking right now at the wall, my... Um, looking at the wall where I I keep this, not that I could forget it, but I like to see it many times during the day. My personal motto is trust perfect timing. Now that came out of all these kinds of experiences. For me, that's a very concrete statement that when we're present and we're open to possibilities and we're authentic and authentic, I think is best understood is when we're being real with ourselves, Mm -hmm. when, when every step we're taking feels right There is indeed a mosaic of perfect timing that's all around us, and we get connected to it in our life and our business and our relationships, and everything that occurs begins to occur with this perfect timing that has a higher purpose, a higher meaning to it. 
And from coming to these understandings, I'm, of course, on fire that I don't want people building a business or making money in the way that I made my my first million because I realized, oh, my gosh, this is vapid and empty. It's nothingness. Right. It actually is. I mean, it, I mean, I didn't want to give back the house, you know, yeah. but I realized that the house without meaning didn't have any meaning. And I realized how important this meaning stuff was. And so it's at the core of conscious millionaires. And when I help people redo their, usually redo their business models and get them right, that vision they have for the business is of expression of their own, what I call their true north, their own passionate difference they want to be making. And you get everything lined up. Now you're on fire about the business. You've got a big vision that's going to attract the right team because everybody that you want to attract believes in that vision. Much the same as nonprofits have these big missions that they're, you know, they're out to accomplish. And I also have a global nonprofit. So you know, I, my global nonprofit is not much different from my business except that there's no goal in it to make money. But my goal is to provide you know, all these you know, services to youth, 18 yeah. to 25. And I have a big vision of, by doing that, how I hope the world will shift. Because I want to cr- help create the next generation of conscious leaders in 160 countries so that they understand that what I call the triple win, you, others, and society – need to simultaneously win. And I think that's what the 21st century, you know, needs to look like. And so forgetting for a moment that we're having these disruptive terror attacks and all this stuff is going on, I think there is also a big wave of consciousness moving forward and that we're beginning to get that the world we're living in is just pure insanity. It actually is insanity. The idea that you've got over a billion people that don't have any food or water or health or education so that they themselves can become productive and contribute to society, which to me is just, you know, doesn't take much thinking to realize wouldn't you want every person on earth being empowered to contribute to making this a better world? Doesn't that just make sense? You and know, do you and then, feel, JV, as if we're coming across a, a, a modern-day enlightenment around that kind of thinking? Yes, I actually do. And I don't know how it turns out. We could go through, because we're just paying uh, a, a terrible attention to the environment, and we're losing species you know, at such a fast pace that we're really you know, facing that in the next 25, 40 years, we could have some massive collapse of the food chain and we unfortunately happen to be at the top of it at the moment and um, and that's not very good for human beings so we on the way to creating a more conscious world might go from 7 billion to 9 billion but we might go from 7 billion to 2 billion i don't know what happens i don't have a crystal ball but i do know that the kind of world I want to live in and what I think is the biggest question of the 21st century is how do we all learn to collaborate and create solutions where we take responsibility for our lives. I'm huge. I mean, that's huge cornerstone for me. But we also can take responsibility that we're here to contribute, that that's what the human journey is all about. And how are we going to do that on a global scale? Because everything's set in motion. And the internet really, in many ways, is the foundation of it all. 
because of everything going on with the internet, we now have global communications in, in a way that we never have and global possibilities in a way that we never have. You know, and this is only 2015, so we got 85 years to go. And you think of the speed at which we're changing just in this 15 years. It's tremendous what has what shifts that have occurred. The internet really is the tool of that awakening that we were talking about, isn't it? Yes, absolutely, because it's it's the way that we all can communicate and, and begin to, to create solutions together. So I know that to get through this century, I think the biggest question, I used to think the biggest question was sustainability, but now on a, on a, uh, on a pure um, environmental level, and now I really expand that and I go, it's sustainability of the human evolution, that we're at a state that we evolved biologically at a very, 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 very slow pace. Now we're evolving consciously at a very fast pace. And I think the whole stage that we're going through is really the next stage in the human evolution, and it's a consciousness evolution. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. There's a, uh, there's a lot of responsibility on our shoulders, the, the current generation. I just wonder right. and hope that we're up to it. Well, that's why my global nonprofit is focused solely on 18 to 25-year-olds because that's old enough to begin to ask the big questions and to go through college, et cetera, because those are the kind of people that for the most part are attracted to what I'm doing. And at the same time, it's when when we begin to decide, well, what is it that we're really doing with our lives? What do we want to do with our lives? I want to influence that process. I'm very clear about what, what I want to do. I want to influence that process so that whatever area someone goes in, that's not what I want to influence. Some people will be politicians and teachers and doctors and lawyers and you know build companies and entrepreneurs, but that there's a a, a, an emerging philosophy of what life is supposed to be about at this time that says we all have to figure out a way to, to, to win together. And I think that's what we have to do this century. Sorry, JV, your youth initiative is, is wholesome and worthy, mate. I, I applaud you for that. I, I think it's fabulous. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much. So, JV, in your uh, literature, you explicitly talk about taking a six-figure income and turning into seven figures. So, going from a hundred grand plus a year to a million dollars plus a year. And, right. you know, given that, and, and I did a little bit of research, given that only about 20% of Americans and about 12 or 13% of Australians earn over $100,000 per year. I'm wondering if that statement is a conscious effort to target people who are already doing well. They're statistically better educated and presumably highly motivated. Yeah. Well, let me let me answer that two ways. Um, because I just did another interview, and that whole interview was how to go from zero to 100,000. Right. Okay. So. All right, so I see, and I'm in the middle of uh, really the be the beginning process. So the middle of having made a lot of decisions, and uh, the first quarter, and possibly as early as January, we're we're launching um, a Conscious Millionaire Business Academy. So we've been taking and putting it into stages. So one stage will be working with people and having videos and group coaching on how do you build get to your 100,000 and then specifically how are you going to get there in 12 months let's not take longer than that let's let's take the group of people who statistically fail and that's really the only way to look at it uh, because only 90 
90 to 95% of entrepreneurs who ever start a business never get to 100,000 and 90 to 95% within four to five years are out of business. And there's a high correlation between those two groups. They're scary stats, aren't they? Right. Those are very bad stats. And so I've, the last three months, I've been really studying what is it that people are doing that they manage to spend three and four and five years and, and not even have 40000 or $50,000 worth of revenue? Like, how, how, is that, how is that happening? Yeah. And so now that I've been kind of tearing that apart the way any systems thinker would, and, and I've been identifying you know, the factors that need to be in place and that what that model needs to look like, especially from an internet business type of uh, focus, which is really where I'm focused. And so I think I'm getting that down. And so then when you then pick up at six, so part of the main goal will be to get people to six so that then the business is set up correctly so that we can now focus on the scaling stage of going from six to seven. Right. And yes, it is taking at six by definition of the fact whether I helped them get to six or they got to six on their own before we ever met, that by the time you've gotten to six, you're beginning to have success patterns that you didn't have at zero. Right. Right? And then you're taking those success patterns and putting them on steroids, teaching them how to leverage them, then teaching them how to think even more differently to create higher levels of success patterns so that you can scale through systems from six to, to seven figures. Because part of the question you have to ask yourself is why are you here? My ultimate, I think my ultimate question was answered six months ago when I had a night that, and I'm a numbers guy. I'm, I'm also trained as a tax attorney. So I really a numbers guy. And I actually think all that's fun. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was like, what did I do in law school on Saturday night? So Not everyone agrees with, with you on that, on that job. Not everybody agrees with me on that. That's absolutely right. But I wouldn't know how to run a business except by the numbers. Cause you gotta, you gotta look at all your numbers. So any rate, is that I want to positively impact 1 billion people. Right. So when you get clear about your real outcome for your life, then you can start making strategic decisions. Like it's one of the reasons I'm on a lot of shows now is that I want to impact more people because that's part of my 1 billion people. So now all of a sudden, it influences all the decisions I make about my life. So I also want to get more people to six figures because their life is so much better off. And then I want to get them to seven figures because there's the ripple effect of now they're out influencing their tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or even million people. They're out there influencing a number of people themselves. And so that all is a ripple effect of that adds to that 1 billion people that I want to have in some way positively impacted. You know, I'm so pleased that we had this conversation because I'm going to admit to you that when I jumped on your website, even when I saw your domain name and your, the name of your business, it seems, it, it, at first glance, it can come across as very money-focused, superficial almost. But there's so much depth to what you're talking about. All of the goals that you have and that I read on your website, once I dug into it, and from especially talking to you, they're, they're so humanly uh, worthy, yet the name of your business is The Conscious Millionaire. It's unashamedly financially based. Did you have any reservations about naming it that way, or is there, is there a deliberate purpose behind that? 
Well, you know, if we we um, we look at you know the moment that I was in the hot tub and saw the word conscious and conscious millionaire came to me, I immediately knew that I had for several years been going out camping and I call it asking the universe, you know, why am I here? How can I take my talents and do something that's going to really matter? So the moment I got that inspiration of conscious millionaire, I just knew immediately. But now I that that was it. Now, that said, I've had to go through not only my own wrestling of how to present it as a brand, but I've had to go through, um, you know, who are we going to focus on? Why are we going to focus on it? And, and in the various stages of getting to where I'm at, there were times that I would focus almost entirely on the conscious piece. But then when I found that I did that, what I would attract were a lot of people who had great conscious thoughts, but huge, huge issues around money that were not something they actually wanted to resolve, interestingly enough. You know, so now I'm focused and I'm saying, look, it's very, very simple. Do not pretend to yourself. And this is what I had to come down to is like, why am I on the planet? Who am I here to help? And when are we really playing a genuine conscious game with our lives? By game, I mean, you know, we're setting it up that way. If, if you make 40,000, 50,000 in a year, and next year you make another forty or fifty thousand. In ten years from now, you're still making forty or fifty thousand. Let's not kid ourselves. Let's look in the mirror and be truthful. We're playing small if we choose to do that, and that has nothing to do with our talents. It has nothing to do with our gifts. It has nothing to do with the difference that we're capable of even making. We're just not making a very big difference, yeah. right? Because. Yeah. By definition, you didn't have a lot of clients. Yeah. You didn't touch a lot of people's souls. So if you really want to be conscious about this thing called money, then let's get clear that until you get to six figures, you barely have a real business. And then when you go from six to seven, now you have something that you can leverage from one to two, from two to three. You know, you can decide where it's the right time for you in terms of the size, because I really emphasize there are lots of pieces to life, you know, so you want time for these other pieces. And, and you got to listen to what your calling is all about, right? But, but I, I'm in the business of helping people play bigger and having a bigger impact with their lives. And if you're going to do that and be an entrepreneur, then you can't simultaneously say, well, I just don't think that this money stuff is stuff we should even talk about. And, and making a, a big profit is, is clearly something not so good. Well, I think if you're conscious, you want to make that big profit because that big profit came from making a big difference and adding big value to other people's lives. That's how you get paid. JV, are you a, uh, would you describe yourself philosophically as a Stoic? Stoic. Well, you'd have to define that for me. So that's, that's someone who sees, and I, I think you, you are, you, you're someone who sees wealth as not just about financial, but about exactly as you talk about virtue, the number of lives that you touch. And and the, the parallel goes further because the, the most famous Stoic is Seneca, as I said before. And he talked about wealth not being, not defining a man and that it was an empty life to chase wealth, but a, but a fruitful life to chase virtue. But the great irony was that Seneca was one of Rome's wealthiest individuals. But he, he, through his position, could see that wealth wasn't everything. And it was only through being wealthy that, it, that he was able to talk about those things. Yeah, I think what's really great, uh, and now we come to, to answering that question through Conscious Millionaire, is that 
I think the universe, even maybe with a little sense of humor, because they knew I had perseverance, that otherwise they, I, nobody else would have gotten this assignment if they didn't have perseverance, I'm assuring you. Because I'm, I'm both being asked to ask the question and being asked to help resolve the question of how do you bring conscious and being a good virtuous person together with money that traditionally has been aligned with words more like greed Mm -hmm. and taking advantage of people. And I think the answer is that this whole consciousness revolution that we're going through brings us to a different way of looking at everything about our lives, about our health, about our relationships, about our relationships with one another, about how we're here to contribute, about what life is even about. To me, life looked at through a conscious lens is a very different life than looked at through, say, Newtonian physics. When I'm saying, I think there's this mosaic going on around me at every moment that has perfect timing already occurring, and yet if you just look at that Newtonian physics level of life, you know, the you you go, well, this this is a pretty messed up place. Both can be true. It can be messed up and perfect timing can be occurring, but it also depends on what lens you're looking through. And when you look at through a conscious lens and you see your life, um, if you see, let's talk about ownership versus custodianship. I think that this will kind of help resolve the answer. If you actually think you own that money that's in your bank account, that's one perspective. And if you think you're the custodian and that even though you went out and you did all these efforts to get the money, you know, even though I would say a lot of us, if we're conscious or are guided in those efforts, but that we realize from the get-go that we're, we're just the custodians. Right. We're here, we're here to create wealth in a way that for me, part of conscious millionaire is creating examples right? That there is another way. There is a different path that you can approach wealth and that it's great to live in abundance, whatever you want. I like going, you know, I rented one of the presidential suites at the Bellagio to celebrate, you know, some success I had, you know, my coach at the time, you know, was, uh, you know, very big on, uh, not doing, not spending money or buying things unless you were celebrating something you would accomplish. So I'd accomplished something and I went and did that for a couple of days to me. That's part of the celebration of life, of realizing that there is this infinite abundance. And at the same token, what did I focus on in that? I focused on the experience, that I love experiences and that different experiences are going to touch my soul in, in various ways and help me grow and, and, and become more fully human and more capable of, of doing my work on, on earth. So Conscious Millionaire says you don't have to make a choice. And we go back to when I was five years old and I run in the house and my mom shakes her fingers at me. Well, when I was writing my book, my editor said, you, you have to go back and tell your story and you got to tell why the pieces were what they were. And I had always remembered that, uh, you know, all my life, my mother shaking her fingers at me and telling me not to tell anyone that I wanted to be a millionaire when I was five. Well, we happened to have lived across the street from the little country church, and we went to church three times a week, and twice a week, we were usually the only family there, especially Wednesday nights, but we went anyway. And so, my mother and father were very, very intelligent, and yet had all these financial problems, right? And I realized when I thought through it that, and the conversations that you know were in our household growing up, that they very much so had the belief that a lot of people still have, and it's the division of conscious 
and millionaire that good people don't have much money because they're good. Better to be good than rich, right? right. Better to be good than rich. And they're mutually Not, exclusive. They're mutually exclusive. And so what she was really saying to me wasn't, I don't want you to grow up and have money. What she was saying is, you know, people who have money do criminal things. They take advantage of people. They're shysters. They're not good people. We don't, you know, they're evil. We don't want you to grow up to be like that. And so what Conscious Millionaire is saying, no, the epitome of good is going out and adding value to other people's lives. And when you do that in a productive way and you're building a business, getting paid for the value you're giving is a, is a, is a reasonable exchange to expect. And it also empowers you to live your life better, to send your kids to college, to have great vacations, to have a retirement where you're not broke, and to expand your business and touch more people in more ways. The two belong together, and unfortunately, most of the history of mankind has had them apart from one another, and one poor was good, and rich was bad, and you had to decide which side you wanted. You couldn't go to heaven if you were going to be too rich, right? right. It, those were the things people believed. Yeah, that's uh, fascinating. And I, I think that you do well and truly fit in that, that category of, of, of the philosophical stoic. The, 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 I think just going from memory, the, the tenets they live by that if, you know, the way that you make your money should cost no blood. So it shouldn't hurt anybody well, else. It shouldn't hurt anybody. It should uplift them instead. And it should be something that you're passionate about. And it should be something that you can either do without or, or enjoy in your life. And then lastly, that you use it to do good. So and that's the, the principles. Take that another step to social consciousness and social entrepreneurship and the whole movement to build businesses that don't leave uh, negative footprints. Yeah. So you're going to change your fine, uh, your manufacturing processes so there's no waste. You know, that's a huge movement in and of itself that's all, you know, related to what we're just talking about here. So, JV, after an extensive exploration of you and your material, sifting through all the obvious skills and talents that you have, I've come to the conclusion that you are, first and foremost, a motivator. Is that a fair assessment? Does it sit well with you? Yeah, I think that I am a motivator, absolutely, because I'm about motivating people to live at their highest purpose and to do that in a way that's going to make them financially wealthy and by, by enhancing and transforming the quality of other people's lives. And I really want people to be on fire about doing what they can do because the, the worst thing is that most people die never having discovered a deeper purpose for their life. And yet I think that's the whole reason we're on earth. So, so many of my listeners, they either work as part of a team or they're a leader of a team as part of their role. And I know that for a lot of leaders and members of teams, having the right tools available to them to motivate themselves consistently and the people around them is a constant challenge. I'd love to hear you talk a little about the key elements in motivation. And I'd especially like you to break it down in terms of the difference between motivating ourselves and motivating others. Well, I think that in, it really comes down to working in teams in a way where we're, everybody's going to win. So you've got to start with, for everybody to win, it's got to be a highly collaborative environment usually, where, where everybody's not only contributing, but that we all feel recognized and respected for our, our contributions. So we each feel important because indeed everybody is important. And the way that I you know, figured out very early in my 20s was that I knew that this whole 
typical hierarchy way of looking at things wasn't the way I wanted to run things. And instead, I kind of built a circle where I was in the center of the circle, but all these hubs went out, right? And when we were in meetings, you don't need to constantly tell people that you're the person who signs their check. We all know this. And in fact, it's very counterproductive if that's the attitude you have. And instead, the attitude to have in a team and environment is that everybody equally has the ability to contribute. We're simply going to contribute different things because the even the person uh, that you're thinking, oh, well, they're just the assistant to the assistant, right? So we're going to like really, you know, go in traditional ways. We're going to go, oh, well, they're not you know, far enough up on this hierarchy thing. You know, they couldn't possibly have an, an interesting or worthwhile thought. But this might be the person who sits there the whole meeting and listens and then says one sentence and it's the it's the spark, Right, because they look through a different set of lenses. That that's the real power, really, in teams is that we all have different lenses we're looking through. Right, and it's when we look through all those lenses together. So, you know, there there are different factors. First of all, we need to consciously uh, communicate with one another, and that conscious communication needs to be clean and it needs to be respectful, so that we're saying what's true for us. And we're also conscious communication is equally about listening. So we're also listening to what everybody else has to say. And when we listen, people feel like they have regard, that they're regarded as a human being. And, and of course, anybody who feels personal regard from somebody feels a bond with them and wants to work with them more. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's the way it works. And then we've got to also create clear expectations where we communicate – First of all, with ourselves, we've got to get clear about what we expect in any situation with the team. And a lot of times we come to the table and it's easy to be fuzzy, even with ourselves. Like, what do we really want here? Or what do we want out of Joe? Or what do we want with Sally? But when we can get clear with ourselves and then communicate that openly in a respectful way, then other people know what we expect from them. And it's like none of us are mind readers. We don't walk around with our crystal balls. So if you don't clearly communicate from someone what it is that you want from them or need from them in this team environment, it it shouldn't be surprising that they may not deliver. Yeah, when you don't get it. When you don't get it, right? And then people are not coming from this conscious way of looking at things. Then they're going to go off on this ego oh, I didn't get this, and now they're upset with the person, but you never told them that you wanted it. Well, they should just know. No, they should not just know. So they, they should be told what it is that you're wanting. And, and it doesn't matter what the relationship is. It, it just matters that you clearly communicate your expectations. And then there's something that I call right relationships. Right relationships are very authentic relationships. I think at any moment, there are people that we're best suited to do business with. We're best suited to be on a team with. We're best suited to have as a customer. And I think that that all of us have people that we're most meant to work with and we have people we're not so meant to work with. And I think it's pretty clear what that is. And so we need to do the things that feel right. So if you if you artificially force people to work together where there's not an, a, a right dynamic that's just naturally there, and it's everything's always kind of at harsh angles or rough rough edges with one another, 
that's not the best team to have created because they're just people who naturally belong together. And if you put people in a room and say divide up into three teams, um, you're much more likely and then work together for the day. And by the way, if at some point you want to change teams, you can change teams. It seems to me that that might be a, a better way to find out who might work best with each other, right? So there's a right relationship. And then if there's got to be mutual responsibilities and guidelines that everybody agrees on that I'm going to be responsible for this part, but then I'm not going to meddle with this other part. You know, if we're having a group team meeting and we're discussing something where we're all going to collaborate or put our ideas together, then you may be commenting on that. But it's it, you take your responsibility and you let other people have their responsibilities. And so you need to have those things very cleanly and consciously chosen. You so also the, need the, to the get, clear role definitions there you're talking about. Yeah, clear role definitions. And then a piece that frequently does not get dealt with very well in business uh, at any level is the whole level of personal boundaries. You know, is that we've got to be clear about this is acceptable behavior with us and this is not acceptable behavior and this is how I want to show up and this is not how I want to show up and this is how I want to treat others and it's how I want to be treated and that all comes back to the clear communication again. You know, is that we've got to create our personal boundaries because if not, especially if you're, let's say you're in a team environment that's, um, everybody's kind of aggressive. Now, by aggressive, I just mean that, you know, people are going for it. Yeah, go-getters. Yeah, you're all go-getters. But you've still got to have some personal boundaries that say, you know, if this is not an okay way for me to be treated by someone, then you need to go have a conversation with them. And this is really the difference and kind of comes to the heart and soul that a team built from everybody being conscious. And this means that each person must be responsible and that the company must be responsible for providing a means for people to develop consciously. It's not like you turn a switch on one day. You know, the journey that I've been on, I've been on all my life. And, I, and, it, and it really started as a child of really developing my consciousness. I didn't know I was doing it, but I was kind of doing it from the get-go. You've got to develop your consciousness, but when we it kind of goes back to, do you own the money? Or are you the custodian of the money? When you come to a team and it's about, I've got to shine. My ideas have to get the most notice. I've got to be the top dog. You've almost destroyed the possibility of having a good team before you ever got there. Yeah, right. You sure have. Right? Because, because that's not going to, in any way, work in a conscious team environment. Now what we have is an ego-competitive team environment. And frankly, when I find myself er, very seldom these days, because the people I hang out with, but if I'm someplace where, say, you're at a lunch table or something, you're at a conference, and it just turns out that people want to behave this way, then honestly, I just shut down. I'm done. I'm not going to compete. Yeah. I'm not slightly interested in playing the game. Yeah. And as soon as lunch is over, you know, I move on because I want to connect with people who want to play this higher consciousness game. And maybe that is the best way to look at, at a conscious approach to team is that there's a higher consciousness to it all. That we're about serving more than who we are. We're about serving something more and it's serving the team and serving the team's outcome. And that's our drive. Javi, I love that advice you've just given 
there, so tangible, so understandable for our listeners, and it just makes so much sense on a, on a rational level. It's, it's really smart stuff, mate, and I know that that is in your book, isn't it? Uh, yes, all of this is in chapter uh, chapter nine, which is my relationship chapter. So I wrote a whole chapter on relationships, and it was one of the last chapters that I wrote because in business, I think it it the relationships are everything. And there's even a, a section that I, uh, I've had a lot of people really love the section in which I talk about your um, your relationship with your partner. And I liken the relationship you have with your business as a marriage and whether there's a legal marriage with a partner. Um, I'm just, for convenience purposes, I call it, you're in two marriages. And uh, one marriage can destroy the other marriage if they get, if they're not paid attention to and Mm -hmm. it's not your business that will destroy the other marriage because you'd be the one who's just not paying attention to the other person the business had nothing to do with it actually but you've got to pay attention to your partner you've got to give them positive regard and then there's a conversation that you need to have and i call it you know that you're signing up for a roller coaster so i hope that people get the book at the beginning of a relationship. But I go, if if you've been in a relationship for a while, you still need to have this conversation because anybody who's in a relationship, say with an entrepreneur, you're, you're in a relationship with somebody who has hopefully consciously is aware that they're on a roller coaster. If they're not consciously aware at the beginning, it won't take them long to figure it out because this thing of being an entrepreneur or for that matter, anything that's at an upper level, uh, I think, but, but I'm here, I'm talking about entrepreneurship because, you know, two months are never alike. They're never alike in revenue. They're never alike in the time that's required. You know, it's, 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 it is a roller coaster ride and you need to make certain in choosing the right relationship for you that you have this conversation about the roller coaster ride, because the chances are, if you're an entrepreneur, you are on a scale of 10 where 10 is high risk and you really don't want to be involved with the 10. Those are people who explode and nines, I, nines are, and eights are dangerous to me as well. But I'm a seven, so I can deal with a lot of risk. Right. But you probably are a six or a seven, I think, or is a really good place to be for entrepreneurship, but you're certainly not a one. Right. And not, an, and not a 10. And and hopefully you're not a ten because you're going to blow up <laughs> too, too many times. But all all very frequently, someone who's that seven gets involved in a relationship with a two. Yeah, right. And that can be a very uh, emotionally uncomfortable place for both people. And so if that's going on, then you need to negotiate that understanding of what this relationship is about, because. They may have signed up for the roller coaster ride, but they didn't know about it. So I think it's better to have the roller coaster ride conversation up front uh, and certainly conscious so that everybody knows what they signed up for. And if you really don't want to go on a roller coaster ride, don't do the relationship because that's what it's going to be. No matter how successful you are, it is a roller coaster ride. It's fascinating stuff. I I love it. And I implore all my listeners to jump on your website and have a look at your book. It's really fantastic stuff. I love the way you think and I love the way you explain the work that you do. It really is intriguing. Uh, Before I let you go, though, I'm going to hit you with four really quick questions. I always end my conversations with these same questions. Are Are you ready for them? I'm ready. All right. JV, tell me about 
the Saturday. Oh, wait, wait, wait. No, no. Let's just yes, yes, no, yes. Is that right? Did I get them right? You got them wrong. Oh, wrong. my They're goodness. Not so yes, no, no, no yes, no. <laughs> They're much more interesting questions than that, JV. Okay. All right. Here we go. All right. Tell me about the Saturday night you most look forward to an intimate dinner with your closest friends or a big party with lots of people you know. Wow, that's a uh, that is a great question actually, because uh, I'm a guy who loves to give big parties, and I How love spending months. Oh yeah, yeah, I'll spend months putting together a party. But by big, I mean I'm talking seventy. My parties have typically been from seventy to one hundred thirty people in my homes, wow. and they're they're. But I, then here's the I gotta say a quick a quick answer. It depends. If I'm giving the party. Uh, I might like it. I actually don't like going to parties. Oh, really? Um, it's yeah, I know it's a bizarre thing. Uh, I love being a host, but I don't really like being a guest at a party. I I do almost everything I can to avoid going, and to the point that I hurt my friends' feelings and I have to discuss it with them. You know, no, I actually don't like going to parties. Um, so I probably would want the intimate conversation dinner. All right, good. Now tell me, are you most likely to be caught daydreaming? Or get bogged down in detail? Oh, wow. That is another great question because I can do both. Hmm. What are you most likely to get caught doing? Oh, I get caught daydreaming. Right. That would have been my guess after having chatted with you for a while. Yeah, because I I would have, I'm all about the vision. (laughs) All right. Are you a slave to a rational thought process or do you make decisions based on emotion? Oh, intuitive. Every every decision, I'll pour over spreadsheets and then I go, okay, what's the right answer? And that's what I do. You know what? You, that's probably the most common answer I get to that question. Really? Exactly really? that one. Yeah, said in almost the same words. Yeah, I have an um, I have an intuitive, what I call an intuitive kicker to my decision making process. Yet I will, and pouring through all those all those spreadsheets actually helps the intuition. It's not like it's a worthless process. Yeah. process. It, yeah. it, it's an input of information. Yeah. And then I go, okay, what's the right answer? And that's what I do. Then you let it all percolate and then the answer yeah. spits out. Yeah, it's, it's really clear usually. It's not like it's static. And a very last question, you're going on a road trip. Do you plan the route, book the hotels and know exactly where you're going or do you just get in the car <laughs> and drive? Well, I'm going to answer that with a real life experience. When I sold companies... I took my Grand Cherokee at that time on a four-month, 30,000-mile road trip that I planned to the detail Ugh. for a year and a half. And, and 100 miles into the trip, metaphorically, I threw every bit of the plans out and made it up as I went. That so is now, interesting. Yeah, I know. I spent a year and a half planning it. And, with, and, and a, a, about a 100 miles into the trip, I either had to turn right and change interstates to, to continue the trip the way I planned it, or I was just going to make it up. And I said, you know what? I want the adventure. So I'm a real adventure guy. So I'll have plans, but I can be really very adventuresome in, in finding out what happens. So I, I, lo- I, I love the discovery process. I love it. That's a great answer. JV, you have been such a fabulous guest. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you. The honor's all mine, especially with uh, this, this uh, 
podcast that is probably going to be the number one podcast in every category forever. And, uh, and I got to be on it early on while you could still get booked. So I'm, 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 it's my treasure to be here. You are too kind, sir. Thank you so much for having me. So there you have J.V. Crumb, the conscious millionaire. One of the many things I learned early in our chat was that the emphasis is on the word conscious, not millionaire. As it happens, I'll be appearing on J.V.'s podcast as a guest. We'll be recording next week. I'll let you know when it comes out and where you can find it. It'll be a wonderful experience to sit, as it were, on the other side of the microphone. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from this episode on the Lessons Learned page from the podcast. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teams with an S dot guru forward slash podcast. I'll also share some links to where you can find JV, his book, and a whole bunch of other resources. And keep an eye out on the Team Guru website for the next episode on this, my mission to bring the theory of team and leadership development to life. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.